We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever's on your heart. All you have to do is pick up the phone and dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, I remind you, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, we got a lot going on. I'm still trying to get my brain to accept that today's Wednesday. I'm hopeful that when Paul is here tomorrow on the program, uh, we'll leave the show at 5 o'clock and, and it'll feel like it's really Thursday. So after the holidays, it always takes me a little bit of time to get adjusted. Tonight here at Calvary Chapel, I'm going to be teaching Leviticus uh, part of chapter 25, and I hope, I pray, all of chapter 26. Uh, we have two more weeks in the book of Leviticus tonight and next week, and then we'll be done. Uh, so if you are interested, you can watch it live stream uh, at calvarysa.com, or you can just join us. We always have room on Wednesday nights, and you would be blessed by all of the people. Uh, tomorrow, as I mentioned, Paula will be live in the studio on the Date Day Show, so you can get ready for that. If you have any questions for Paula, she will be live and be available. While we wait, any phone calls? Let's get to our questions that have been sent in. Here's the first one from Morrow. He says, as a youth leader, what books would you recommend for children's ministry ages 8 to 12? Mario, thank you for your service as a uh, youth leader. That is a wonderful, wonderful blessing to those kids. But, but please hear my heart on this. I don't recommend any books. Not ever. We have the Word of God. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible. We teach our kids starting from toddlers in the Word of God. 
verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Now, we obviously, we do it at their level. But, but this is when you have the opportunity to give these kids a foundation that will never move. So as a youth leader, forget books, forget children's stories, uh, forget uh, programs that you go out and buy or you find online. Open your Bible. Mario, you become familiar with it. You and, and those who are serving uh, under you as teachers, um, make them invest in, in study of the Word of God, and then you can communicate the Word of God, the living, active Word of God. You can communicate it to those kids. You know, Mara, we've been doing this for a long time, tw- almost 29 years now. It'll be 29 years next, um, uh, 29 years next year. And um, the fruit we've seen from just trusting God's Word It's not boring. It's exciting. The kids, especially at that age, will come up with amazing questions. But they will become familiar. They'll begin to grab hold of the Word of God. And then what you're going to find out as they age through your 8 through 12 uh, age group, um, you're going to find you're sending people to junior high ministry or a high school ministry later uh, who really have a solid grasp on what the Word of God is and what it says. And one of the things these kids need, Mario, now more than, more than any other time maybe in our history, they need something that will never change. We don't have to go improvise. We don't have to make stuff up. We don't have to explain away things uh, because change has occurred. God's Word endures forever. And it will never change. It is always true. It's always been true. Thus, it will always be true. And the, the world that these kids are being sent out into, whether it's public schools, uh, in, into uh, social media, uh, just a world that hates God, they need that one thing that never changes, something that they can hold on to with all of their strength, and only the Word of God will do that. So uh, I'm sorry if that disappoints you. We simply have never spent a dime on Sunday school curriculum or children's ministry curriculum, or or we've never had a meeting about how to get more kids involved. Um, We just simply open the Word, and we let God bring the people that he has entrusted to us. We do that at every age group, including Mario, the adults. So that's what we do. The result for us has been we have a vibrant church, uh, a diverse church, unbelievably diverse. Uh, We have so many young people who are actively and and proudly committed to serving God and to the Word of God. Um, It's just a very vibrant ministry, uh, and it's all because of the Word. It has nothing to do with anything else, just the Word. One other comment, Mario, it would take a lot of stress off you as a leader. You want to sit down and try to figure out what to do next week. I know exactly where I'm going. When I get here on Sunday, I, I finish chapter uh, 25 or 24 in the book of Acts last Sunday. I'm going to start in Acts chapter 25 this Sunday. And, and and we just pick up wherever we left off in the middle of a chapter, the end of a chapter. It doesn't matter. We just continually do that. Uh, and it is wonderfully freeing to know that I don't have to come up with something clever. So, Mario, I hope that helps. I hope that helps. Here's a question from Nancy. 
Nancy says, it's hard for me to believe that Jesus is God. The Son of God, okay. In other words, I believe that. But God? That seems to divide people. Nancy, the question isn't whether or not it divides people. Of course it divides people. In fact, Jesus, if you'll open your Bible, Jesus said that he would divide even families. People hate you because they hated me. People insult you because they insulted me. So the idea of division, that's necessary. Jesus, from cover to cover in the Bible, he draws a spiritual line in the sand and says, okay, I'm on this side. What side are you going to be on? And then we have to choose what side we're on. He gives us the freedom of choice, but we have to make that choice. Now, the question isn't whether or not it's divisive or whether people want to hear it. The question is simply one thing, and that is, is it true? Is it true? Now, we know that Jesus claimed to be God repeatedly. Uh, the rest of the, uh, the, the Bible, the, uh, the New Testament epistles, um, point out that Jesus is God. So your choice, Nancy, is do you believe it? Now, in order to believe, you've got to find out if it's real. Jesus fulfilled more than 300 prophecies. And he p- fulfilled them precisely. And, you know, this common culture, well, you know, we respect Jesus. He was a good teacher and he did all that. But none of that's true. If Jesus came to be God and he isn't God, then he's a liar and he can't save anybody. So, Nancy, that's what you've got to decide. And you have to make that decision for yourself. Not whether it's pleasant to hear. Not whether it divides people. Not even how others respond to you when you might say that. The only thing that matters is, is it true? And I would posit that Jesus proved that every word that he said about himself was true. He was the only way to the Father in heaven. He said he and the Father are one. He made I am statement after I am statement. He calls himself in the book of Revelation the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, uh, the beginning and the end, the, 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 the ancient of days. And so your decision is, is it true? If it's true, then you have to believe that or you're not saved. It's that simple. You can't believe in a Jesus who is the Son of God only. Mormons, for example, believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And they'll talk about that. You say, well, how are you saved? Well, the Son of God died for my sins on the cross. But if he's not also God the Son, since only God can forgive sins, if he's not God the Son, then we're all lost. If he didn't rise from the dead, and see, then we're all lost. So the decision you've got to make, and it's worth every minute of your time until you make that decision, is whether or not it's true. And if it's true, you have to believe it, regardless of how you might feel emotionally at the beginning, but you've got to believe it. And as you believe it, then the Lord will bear witness to the choice that you've made. So I would say to you, Nancy, that it's harder not to believe that Jesus is God than to believe. The evidence is overwhelming. We know that he lived. He was a real historical figure. We know with overwhelming evidence that he was murdered, crucified on a cross. We also know with equally significant evidence, overwhelming evidence, that he didn't stay dead, that he was alive, 
They look for the body. Christianity could have been killed a long time ago if they only found a body. But they never found a body because he is not dead. When Mary Magdalene was looking for Jesus, the angel said to her, Why are you, and and it was in a tomb, why are you looking for the living among the dead? So, Nancy, that's what you got to decide. But I'm going to tell you point blank, Nancy, that if Jesus is not God, Jesus was a liar. Whatever his motive, he was a liar. And if he's a liar, then he is not qualified to die for our sins. That means we're all still lost in our sin. And there is no heaven. And we're all going to be lost forever and ever and ever. So, Nancy, you got to make that choice. All you got to do is open your Bible, ask the Lord to show you who he is. And I promise you he will do that. Here's a question from Jennifer. I know Jesus was a human, so how could he not have a sin nature? I think, Jennifer, this is a response to a question I had um, either late last week or earlier this week. Um, the, the reason Jesus had no sin nature is because he did not have a human father. The sin nature was passed down through Adam. Adam, Romans says, is our federal head. And by a federal head, the first man, um, he, he sinned, and the rest of us became sinners. Uh, he was the representative for all humankind. The second Adam, we're told in Romans, is Jesus. Now, Now, Jesus was not born of a human father, So he had no sin nature, and he became the second Adam, meaning he is a representative for all humankind uh, who, in fact, believe in him and are saved. So, yeah, he was human. He was 100% human. He was 100% God. Um, That math doesn't work in our minds, but but that's what the Bible teaches, forever the God-man. And because he had no sin nature... And because he did not sin, and because he acquiesced to being crucified for your sins, Jennifer, and mine, um, we know that we have an advocate with the Father. One mediator between man and God, the man, Christ Jesus. So yes, he was the son of man, but he was also the son of God, and I always like to add, the God the Son. 340-9585, that's area code 210-340-9585, toll free, 877-630-KSLR. Maurice says, Jesus only people believe that Jesus is God. I know oneness is wrong, but are they still saved? You know, Maurice, this is a hard question because we don't know uh, what's in the hearts of those people. Now, here's what we know for sure. We know their doctrine is heretical. Now, there's going to be people who believe heretical doctrine that are still going to get into heaven. We're going to find, amazingly, that there's a lot of people whose doctrine was really messed up, but they made it to heaven because they really surrendered their heart to Jesus Christ. Um, Galatians says that God knows those who are his. He can't be mocked. He can't be deceived. So he knows those who are his. Our problem, Reese, is that we want to know who's his. So uh, the way that, that I've always approached oneness Pentecostals is simply by telling them the truth and how they respond to that truth. If they try to defend the lie, and in oneness, Jesus only people, it's Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the Holy Spirit, uh, only one God. They don't believe in, in the, 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 the doctrine of the Trinity. 
um, three persons, one God. Um, and, and if they defend that, then it's pretty certain, at least from my perspective, that they're not saved. But you know what? I know people that walk into oneness churches. The same thing is true about Catholic churches, the Mormon um, um, wards. Uh, they'll walk in, they'll hear the name Jesus Christ, and they will believe. They don't know the intricacies of what the faith is or what's being taught. They're, they're just not at that place yet. And we're going to find that there are people who are sitting in those churches who are truly saved. Now, I, I will be very direct and say, I don't think many Maurice will be saved. But the reality is that um, oneness Pentecostalism is uh, a heresy. Excuse me. Uh, It is a heresy. And if they really and truly believe it, if they reject, after instruction, if they reject um, the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, then no, they are not saved. Jesus is separate and distinct from the Father. He's separate and distinct from the Holy Spirit. Uh, Three persons, one God. That's the way it is. Maurice, thank you very, very much. You know, we've got, uh, there's been some pretty famous oneness people. Coughing fan, I'm sorry. Uh, Pretty famous oneness people um, um, still preaching, very popular. I never understand T.D. Jakes and, and others, uh, and yet people follow them. Uh, and I, I, I can't believe all those people are lost. So thank you for the question, Maurice. Terry says, does the Bible teach that we have to give 10% of our income? I don't think that's fair or even reasonable. Um, I don't think um, uh, 10% is reasonable either. Um, we who are under grace, we who are beneficiaries of grace, Terry, we should be giving a lot more than 10%. God gave everything for us. We should give everything to him. Now, he's going to let you keep most of it, but he knows your heart. Now, I'm going to be direct and in, in answering your question, but I'm also going to talk to you, Terry, about your heart. First, the Bible does not teach that New Testament Christians have to give 10%. That was Old Testament law. It applied to Jews. Uh, it, it was a part of what they had to do, not what they got to do, not what they were privileged, privileged to, but what they had to do. New Testament Christians are, are under no such law. That law has been canceled. The law stood in opposition to us. But um, we're to give hilariously, generously. We're to give because we understand that God gave everything for us. And we're to give not 10%, but everything. Uh, Terry, think about this. The, the silliness. Take, take a, a, a dollar, and, and you, you spend 10 dimes. And you say, okay, Lord, here's a dime for you and 90 cents for me. Do you not think you owe God more than that? I mean, that is just an amazing thought to me, and yet, sadly, that's being taught in some churches. Now, Relative to your heart, Terry, this is what bothers me the most. If you don't think 10% is fair or reasonable, what would be fair? If Jesus were here and he said to you, okay, Terry, I don't want you to give under compulsion. I don't want you to give because somebody tells you you have to give. But what do you think I deserve? What would your answer be? Many, many years ago, I was at a restaurant. 
there was somebody who was sitting in a counter next to me, and uh, he was, our foods came about the same time, and I stopped and bowed my head and prayed for my food really quickly. He goes, oh, you pray for your food? And I said, well, of course I do. I'm grateful. That's what God has always done. Um, I mean, I'm just so grateful for what he's done for me. And his response was, well, well, I work hard for my money, so when I get food, I just dig in and eat it. And I told him, I said, and I didn't say this in a snide way, so I wasn't being a smart aleck. But I said, well, that's exactly the same way my dog eats. And it gave me an opportunity to talk to him a little bit. We owe God everything, Terry. We owe him everything. And to, to limit to 10%, I think, really demonstrates where the heart of a lot of Christians really lie. We owe him everything. He gave everything for us. How could we give him anything less? So Terry, I hope that at least gives you something to think about prayerfully. Gina says, how old do you think the earth and the universe really are? Gina, nobody knows. Um, I think, you asked my opinion, I think the earth is somewhere between six and 10,000 years old. Uh, we have genealogies, and we can get sort of a uh, in the ballpark numbers, uh, and that's why I come up with the six to ten thousand years old. Um, but but there's a lot of gaps in the genealogical record, and and so so we don't know for sure. But I can tell you without hesitation that the Earth is young. Um, the idea that we're millions or hundreds of millions or even billions of years old is silliness. Um, uh, th- th- there are some Christians who would believe that simply indicates that they don't have faith to believe what God has stated so clearly in his word. They are are, are, are compromising with what they think is science, but, but think about what science is by definition. It's the observation of some sort of process and then science proves out what that process was. Well, nobody was there to observe the beginning. Only God was there. The other thing that we need to understand is that every single scientist who says we start with the Big Bang or evolution, whatever their theory of life was, whether it's somebody as brilliant as Stephen Hawking was. Now, now believe me, he's a lot more brilliant today because he knows the truth. And he's paying the price for what he wouldn't use his brain to find out. He wouldn't be honest in his search for whether or not what he taught was really true. So here's what we have to understand. God said in the beginning, and only he was there. I think the Bible is demonstrably true. I can also say that all of those scientists who start out with the premise that there is no God... They're trying to explain away, and they come up with all these convoluted, uh, complicated, uh, diverse theories about how it happened and when it happened, and God is just in heaven laughing at them, I think. And I don't mean laughing at them in a derisive way, but laughing through a broken heart. So, Gene, I think the earth is between six and 10,000 years of age. People will say, well, well, that doesn't make any sense. We've got the geological record, and we've got carbon dating, and we got... Here's the thing. Adam and Eve, when they were one day old, and they were told to go out and procreate, multiply, do you think they looked like they were one day old? Of course not. God made them, whatever the prime age was, whatever perfect is, that's how old they were. 
Well, God did the same thing with the earth. And he knew that there would be mockers. Again, the Genesis record makes it really, really clear. So I, I just think it's impossible. It is impossible to have a fruitful walk with the Lord if you don't believe that the earth is young rather than than old. One other comment, Gina. The first 11 chapters of Genesis have to be read literally. Because if they're not to be taken literally, then we lose every essential doctrine of the historic Christian faith. Now think about the ramifications of that. What that means is that everything we believe is wrong. If Adam and Eve were not the first two humans ever born on earth, and if they weren't perfect upon that that moment God made them, then Jesus lied to us. I said this to an earlier question. If Jesus lied to us, then we're not saved because he's a sinner. So every essential doctrine of the historic Christian faith, the, 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 the doctrine of sin, the fall of man, uh, the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, Jesus dying in our place. If the first 11 chapters of Genesis are not understood literally, then we lose all of those things. And I would ask anybody, try then to explain what you believe. Because it's nothing more than believing fairy tales and a myth. So, I think this is an important, just short of being essential for salvation, but certainly critical doctrine. It's a young earth. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. Phones are quiet. We'd love your participation. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630- KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our wednesday program uh let's go to daniel on line one from san antonio daniel thank you for calling you're on the air hello pastor ron i, I was um i had been wanting to call and i was very curious to know what your stance is on, or what what you what does the Bible say, or what can you tell me about? Do you, do you think that Satan or you would put somebody in? Can Satan put a marriage in your life to distract you from the Lord of what you were doing with the Lord? And if if that's the case, is it would you be able to tell that person was not biblical uh, in the sense of that like you could tell by their fruits as uh, the actions they were portraying? Yeah. Now, did you say that Satan would put a put a what or a who in in our okay. life? Yeah, okay. So, like, if you're following the Lord, right? Like, in, as, as in my case, I was following the Lord. I was walking with the Lord very strong, and a bit. I was also lonely, so I was praying for the Lord to. Oh, I see. To, you know, I, I I don't. I was like, I don't care what this person looks like, as long as their heart is right with you, Lord, and they fear you. So that's exactly what what it appeared to be. But as time went on, it it things started not adding up to the biblical wife that I thought I had married. So is it possible that Satan can also put somebody in your life 
to distract you and you thinking that it's a marriage from God? Yeah. Um, Daniel, a couple of things. One, and I, I, if you're committed to following God with all of your heart, I promise you the devil is going to bring people into your life to try to trip you up and to distract you. Now, we don't need to get trapped. We don't need to get caught. And unfortunately, and again, I don't know your situation, but 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 sometimes we want something so desperately that we fall into Satan's trap uh, really easily. And we don't do due diligence. You know, one of the things I tell people all the time when, well, I've been praying for somebody and God brought this person in. I've even had Christians, Daniel, tell me that, well, they're not a believer, but I know God brought him into my life because that's exactly what I was praying for. That's not the Lord. That's the enemy. And yes, 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 he will do anything and everything that he can to try to distract you from what God has for you. And what we need to do is move more slowly. We need to watch people's lives. We need to get involved with them, uh, spend time in the Word with them, and find out who they really and truly are. And I've been um, involved in lots of counseling sessions, Daniel, where uh, somebody married somebody that they thought was a believer, and, and most of the time it just, well, they were hoping he was a believer, or they're hoping that she was a believer. Because, well, I really want somebody. Uh, and, and rather than watching the fruit of their lives, Rather than getting to know them in a service um, type of ministry, um, spending some time really talking about the deep things of God and where their heart is with God, um, we get so anxious because we we don't want to be alone any longer that we fall into the trap that Satan is setting for us. Um, I think rather than blaming Satan for it, we just need to understand that's what he does. And we need to accept responsibility personally for making a rash decision and giving in to our wants rather than waiting to be sure that this person that we have in our lives was really sent from the Lord. Now, now, Daniel, again, because I don't know you specifically, there, there's a, a, a lot of ways to, to check somebody's heart. But the best way is always just to watch their life. Are they kind? Are they considerate of other people? Um, In their conversation, is Jesus an afterthought or is he always in the forefront of the conversation? And I think that's what we really and truly need to do. Daniel, one of the things that I do whenever the Lord uh, brings somebody into the church that I think uh, has the gifting um, to be a pastor or to be a leader in the church um, b- before ever making any kind of a commitment or even really saying anything to anybody, I watch the relationship that that man has with his wife for at least six months. For at least six months, if he's not feeding his wife at home, if they're not growing closer to the Lord and closer together, then I have no right to expect that they're going to um, take care of the people that I love so much. So uh, I think Satan sets those traps. I think too often we Christians walk into them um, with our eyes closed. Our hearts open, but our eyes are closed. I saw a, a, a news video uh, of a lady in New York. She's walking on the street, and uh, there was a construction area on the sidewalk, and she was so intently looking at her phone that she walked right into a hole and opened a hole in the sidewalk and, and hurt herself, obviously. But, but, but people are doing that. I think we Christians do that when it's something that we want. So, Daniel, yeah, he can 
uh, and be real careful. Now, when you marry somebody because your heart is for the Lord, short of biblical reasons for divorce, that's the person you've got to stay with. And then your job is to win them over. But that's why we, we need to be really, really sure before we decide on marriage. Thank you for the question, Daniel. Appreciate it very, very much. Let's go to Cibolo and talk with Matthew online, too. How's our family doing, Matthew? Hey, Papa. We're doing okay. I told uh, Michelle we're going back to work this week. I said we had two weeks off, so we got to get back to work. Uh, work day. <laughs> well, I don't miss you at all, but I miss her. I miss her a lot. Broke my heart. No, I know. Um, no, we'll be back. Uh, Madeline's ready. I told her I think we're ready to go see the world. Um, so w- before we open presents, I, I went down. Uh, oh, you're breaking up, Matthew. Talk about this. Oh, can you hear me, Papa? I can hear you right now. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. So b- before we open presents, and we know that Christmas is not about presents and gifts. I, we always sit down as a family before we open presents, and we talk about Jesus and the story of Jesus and and those things, and of course, I kind of have to dumb it down for a three-year-old, but uh, uh, anyways, we started kind of getting a conversation about your, your message on about the shepherds, and you know, uh, we always think growing up as kids, even from the Catholic faith, we thought the shepherds were like, you know, uh, were the, the, the men of all men, right? And, and then we learned to that shepherds are not the men of all men, right? They're the outcasts, basically, and uh because when you get the Catholic tradition, you just kind of get fed, you know, the three magi, and then you have the, they brought this, and, you know, they have the story, the, the uh, nativity. So I was, I was, and then kind of, I started doing some more research and so uh, more, uh, I guess, uh, more lively discussion on that. However, there was this uh, Christian, actually a professing Christian, uh, was, um, he was, I was reading his commentary, he was talking about that, that the stories were contradictory, and I don't know how you can be a pastor and, and have a contradictory idea, but he was saying the Magi and the shepherds were contradicting each other because one in, in Luke, it talks about that um, that the shepherds went to go see a baby, right? And then in Magi, I think in Matthew, talk, I might have that backwards, but in Magi, it talks about they went to go see a little boy, and then we know the story about Herod. He wanted to kill all the children too, and so he was, con- he was saying it was contradictory because uh, and but you see in the, in the, in the nativity where it, you see all these people mm-hmm. around Jesus in the manger, you know. So it's kind of confusing. So if you can bring all that home, I have I have Mama listening. Um, I I think I explained it well and I explained it right, but I want to make sure I didn't miss anything. So go ahead and if you can bring the the shepherds and magi in the two different scenes. One came early, one came later as a child, one came as a baby. Did they all come together? You know those things. So if you can Thank bring you. all that home for me. I can yeah. do that, Matthew. Thank you. Matt, Matt, God bless you. We love you. A couple of things. First, it isn't the Bible that's contradictory. Luke and Matthew, their accounts are not contradictory. What's contradictory are our nativity traditions. Uh, we always see the shepherds around, and we see the, the magi there in the nativity scenes. Uh, that's what's a contradiction, but that's just based on tradition. We understand that. There's nothing really harmful about that. It just is not correct in the sense that uh, they were there at the same time. We know for certain that the shepherds were there uh, on that first night. Jesus was born. Um, They got the angelic invitation, and they went and saw the infant with the magi. 
um, you know, their journey was was a, a two-year period of time. Now, we, we know the two-year period of time only because they told Herod. Herod asked, well, when did you first see the star? And just to be safe, Herod killed all of the, the male children two years uh, of age and under. So any time from um, months to two years later, the Magi would have shown up. Their their journey would have culminated uh, in in uh, where, where Jesus was. So um, at this particular point, um, we we understand that they they weren't there at the same time, uh, and that's okay. There's no harm to the story at all. I too get a little bit shocked when I hear people who are pastors or Bible teachers say, "Well, there's a contradiction here." In the, uh, they have no business teaching the Bible if they believe that there are any contradictions there. So I hope you guys had a wonderful Christmas. I know you did. And um, praying that Michelle is doing well and Madeline is doing well. Uh, and everybody's getting adjusted to having the new baby in the house. Thank you, Matthew. God bless. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Jason. He says, I know you are a Calvary Chapel Church but why? You could be Baptist or anything else. What distinguishes a Calvary Chapel? Jason, I, I love that you asked this question. Um, uh, I was one of those guys who had no church baggage. When I got saved, uh, I, I hadn't been to church maybe but a couple of times as a really little kid. My grandma would drag me to church. It was the first first Christian church in Pomona, California. Uh, the only other time I ever set foot in a church was in high school because it was a girl that I wanted to date, and that was at Pomona First Baptist Church. So, uh, I mean, I had no church baggage. I didn't understand traditions. I didn't know any hymns. Uh, I had never opened a Bible before I got saved. So, I mean, I was a complete blank slate. Um, and when I got saved, I didn't know what I was. I didn't know what to be. And you're right, I could have been anything, but this is where we learn to trust the Lord. He sovereignly led me to a Calvary Chapel. It's interesting because my life was such a mess. I needed money desperately, and um, the devil had plenty of people around me, well-meaning people, but but nonetheless, they were his tools, um, who, who wanted, taught me that Jesus wanted me to be rich, and all I do is is believe with all my heart, have enough faith, and he would make me wealthy, and all my problems would go away. Uh, and so I, that, the first churches I went to were prosperity churches. And from the beginning, Jason, I knew that that, that wasn't true. I, I couldn't explain why I didn't have any biblical basis. I just, just in my spirit, I knew that wasn't true. The problem I had is that I wanted it to be true. Um, so I hung in there. Um, when I found that it wasn't true, the Lord sovereignly led me to a Calvary Chapel in Ontario, California. Uh, Pastor David Rosales, who is a uh, now a, a friend of mine. Um, and uh, at first I was, I was kind of repelled. Uh, his teaching was so direct. He just taught verse by verse through the Bible, just like I do now. And uh, I, I just thought he was harsh and unloving. Um, he was critical of prosperity teachers, some of the prosperity teachers that I was trying to follow at the time. And, and I just was I just thinking, well, this isn't for me. But there was an irresistible draw. He was teaching with an authority that I knew was way different than any of the prosperity churches. And even though I said I'm not coming back, I kept coming back. 
And it only took me several weeks before I was convinced this is what's true. So um, that was just the Lord leading me and guiding me. Now, when I was called to be a pastor and I went to Bible college, I actually was going to apply at another Bible college, uh, Rama Bible College uh, in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And uh, it, it was prosperity thing that was recommended to me. And the Lord literally thwarted my um, um, applications. Um, they never got them. I sent them. They never got them. Um, it just was very frustrating to me. And one day, um, Paul and I were in the car, and we heard a commercial from a Calvary Chapel pastor about Calvary Chapel Bible College. And the Lord kind of spoke to us both at the same time. That's it. Now, I had no money, and the Lord provided the way for me to go. So that's kind of how I ended at a Calvary Chapel. Now, you ask what distinguishes a Calvary Chapel. This is where God is so good to me. Earlier in the program, I had a question about uh, children's ministry books uh, to recommend. And I said, no, it's the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Uh, Calvary Chapel's primary focus is the Word of God. Uh, We teach it. God is responsible for bringing the people. We teach it. We rightly divide the Word of God and we teach it. What does it say? What does it mean? And what does that mean for me in my everyday life? And uh, and that is the primary difference in Calvary Chapel. Now, every church will tell you, oh, no, we're all about the Word. But, but they preach it. They don't teach it. And the teaching just made sense to me. In context, verse by verse, wherever I ended on one Sunday, I'm going to pick up the next Sunday. By the way, I do the same thing on Wednesday night in the Old Testament and Friday night in the New Testament in, in different books. But but that's what really marks us out as really being different. We truly, literally teach the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So um, that's that's the, the primary distinguish, uh, distinguishing feature. Uh, there are other things, though. We're, we're all pre-tribulation in our eschatology. The Bible teaches that the rapture of the church will happen before the Great Tribulation. And so we are not interested in, although I understand where other people are coming from, um, I'm not interested in presenting um, alternative points of view. This This is what it teaches. This is what it says. Uh, we are not against denominations. Uh, we got no axe to grind, um, but but we don't appreciate the differences and the, and the divisions caused by some of those denominations. Uh, we reject uh, wholeheartedly prosperity teaching. We reject uh, Calvinism completely. Uh, we are dispensational in our approach to Scripture, the only way that you can make any sense at all uh, about uh, or for in the Word. So that's really the things that distinguish a Calvary Chapel. Um, Jason, I told you that I was a blank slate. Um, you know, in our church, we've never spent one minute or one dime trying to figure out how to make our church grow. Um, we've never asked anybody for money. Uh, we've never let our needs be known. These are the things the Lord spoke to my heart, and, and he led me to Calvary Chapel. Sort of that was my compass point in the very beginning. It's what he wanted us to do, and we've been doing it for uh, now nearly 29 years ever since. So um, I'm grateful to God for it. Calvary Chapel has changed over the many years that we've been there, um, and yet I can say with authority that Calvary Chapel of San Antonio has not changed. We've been doing the exact same thing 
for all these years, nor will we change as long as I'm the pastor of this church. Thank you for the question. Here's a question from Vince. Uh, I heard you were getting a new building. What is your timeline and what do you need? Um, Vince, we are getting a new, we've got a new building. Um, Now we're just waiting for money so we can fix it. Our timeline is July of next year. Uh, Actually, August 1st is when we have to be out of this building. Uh, So August 1st, um, we'd like it before that, but um, there's just a lot of money. It's a lot of money, and again, we do everything for free, so we don't have a lot of money. So we're sort of um, laying this down every day at the Lord's hands. You know, Paul and I, we go uh, over to the building uh, pretty much every day during the week anyway, and and um, we just sit there and pray. And I, I just this morning, I said, well, Lord, here we are again, and you know what we're going to ask for, and you know what we need. So the prayers can sometimes get a little bit stale. But yeah, we are getting a new building. Uh, we have a new building. Uh, we've we've done all the work and spent the money to uh, deconstruct it. Now we're just waiting uh, to, uh, to for the resources to do the construction. So uh, what we need more than anything else is your prayers, um, our focus in a new building. Uh, we'll be doing what we do with a lot more people, uh, but that's not why we're doing it. We're doing it... Um, and we won't change there either. We'll keep doing exactly the same thing that we've been doing for all these years. Uh, we'll just be doing it with more people. I think one of the, the great things that is going to happen, we're going to be able to expand our school. Um, you know, we're we're very limited by space. We have 135 kids in our free school. Uh, and we'll be able to double that if if uh, if the Lord so desires for us to do that. I don't like waiting lists. I don't like telling families, no, we can't get their siblings in this class or that class. But um, um, So that's just a wonderful ministry opportunity. Uh, The other thing, uh, multi-medical, our free doctor's office, um, they're going to have about twice as much room as they have now. So they'll be able to expand there as well. Uh, We're going to be able to open our our new restaurant, our free restaurant uh, called Unusual Kindness. Um, uh, in that facility, we've got uh, a little over 5,000 square feet set aside uh, for them. So for us, it's just a really exciting thing. We've got a free Bible college uh, that, that we'll, be, we'll be starting as soon as it makes sense to do it. Uh, so, uh, Vince, prayer, 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 prayer. Thanks very much. I appreciate you asking. Jessica says, if Judas was predestined for hell... Isn't it unfair for God to punish him? Jessica, I think sometimes we misunderstand what predestination or election is really all about. Um, God didn't make Judas betray Jesus. God knew he was going to do it. First Peter chapter 1, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, um, according to God's foreknowledge, that's the basis of God's choosing us. He chooses those that he knows are going to choose him back. It's that simple. God sends the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit draws us to the Father. Remember, we don't come on our own. The Spirit draws us. God knows. He waited for me for all of those years Paula was praying for me. And on that day, when I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ, 
I understood for the first time what chosen by God was. I had to make the choice. We have a an idea that, well, if he was predestined, he had no choice. Judas had lots of choices. Jesus gave him a lot of opportunities, in fact, to repent. And and uh, even when he said, betray us, thou the son of man with a kiss, um, Judas could have broken down right there and said, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. But he didn't. And of course, God knew that. So when Jesus said he was the son of perdition from the beginning, um, it doesn't mean that he didn't have a choice. He did. God simply knew the terrible choice that he was going to make. So uh, it is always fair. Whatever God does is always fair. And we need to understand that. This might be our last question for today. Mallory says, uh, Pastor, if uh, can Christians become demon-possessed? Um, Mallory, true born-again Christians cannot be demon-possessed. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. It doesn't say greater is he who is in me than the other he in me. Um, in him is light. There's no darkness at all. Um, we simply can't walk in the darkness. Uh, if we claim to follow Jesus, we got to walk in the light. And that's precisely what um, what we do. Uh, if Satan could possess that which belongs to God, that would mean God doesn't have enough power to protect his own. In Ephesians chapter 1, we're told that the Spirit of God is given to us as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. That's eternal security. If Satan can come in and upset everything, then God's guarantee is literally of no value. So Christians cannot be demon-possessed. Mallory, on the other hand, Christians and everybody else can be harassed by demons. Um, you know, they'll, they'll huff and puff and threaten to blow our house down. Satan will wait for that right moment when our faith is weak or when we're afraid of something. Um, and, and he'll pounce with all of his strength because he's trying to diminish the fruit that comes from our lives. But he cannot control that which is controlled by God. So no, Christians cannot be demon-possessed. The idea, and this is typically um, sort of over-the-top charismatic churches, um, you know, they blame Satan for all kinds of things, for disease, for all of that. First uh, John says that those of us who are protected by God, the, the evil one cannot touch us apart from the direct permission of God. Now, we know that God gave permission for Satan to attack Job, he also gave Satan permission to attack Paul, the apostle. But I don't think any of us, Mallory, are in that category. So Christians cannot be demon-possessed, and you can be confident in that. Hey, thank you for the show today. Thank you for the phone calls. Uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Tonight I'm going to be teaching out of Leviticus just two more studies in the book of Leviticus, and then we'll be moving to Amos. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Paula will be live in studio tomorrow on the date day edition of the show. And may the Lord uh, keep you safe tonight. We'll see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.